In today's competitive e-commerce environment, it's never been more important to earn and maintain the trust of your customers. Merchant Fraud Journal's To Catch a Fraudster podcast is supported by SIFT, the leader in digital trust and safety. SIFT empowers companies to stop fraud and grow without risk. Visit sift.com slash assessment to schedule a consultation with SIFT's trust and safety architects. Industry experts who have decades of fraud fighting experience at companies like Facebook, Square, and Google. They'll help create a custom plan for your business with an emphasis on technology, organizational structure, and process. Visit sift.com slash assessment today. And we're live. Bill, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Our pleasure, our pleasure. So we'll start off the way that we always do. Tell us who you are, who you represent, and then we'll jump right in. Sure. So I'm Bill Bruno. I'm the CEO of uh, Celebris, um, and we have uh, both a marketing and a fraud data platform. Amazing. So I always like to start off these conversations where possible with amazing stories of fraud. And you have both amazing technology to share with us and amazing stories of fraud. But let's start with the amazing stories of fraud, and then we'll we'll work from there. Give me your give me your best uh, crazy fraud story. You know, I'll I'll, I'll give you two. Um, one just happened this past week that that the team has taken a lot of pride in. But one of our banking customers, um, and they published this so we can talk about it, is HSBC. And one of their customers, uh, her mom was buying a home, and fell victim to a scam. Um, where you know the wire transferring that we all get terrified of when we buy a home, right? You just you're so nervous that you're sending it to the right place. There's not a place, not a way to grab it back, right? All the things that that everybody goes through. For those of you that have, have bought a home, you know that exact feeling, right? And and unfortunately for this person's mother, she uh, had fallen victim to a scam and had sent the money, or at least initiated sending the money. Uh, to the to the fraudster and not to the institution that she was intending to, right? And this is what gets us out of bed in the morning, right, with Celebris. But at the end of the day, right, this is someone's money that they've worked hard for that just almost was stolen. And fortunately, because of Celebris and the data that we're providing to the bank and some of the other partners therein, they were able to identify this before it happened. They were able to stop the transaction and they were able to return the money back to this person's mother's account, right? And so- yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Can you take me through kind of what the scam was? Because this is the first, this is a large sum of money for yeah. a, a purchase that people, as you said, are on top of. This is not yeah. something you're doing fly by night. So please uh, tell, you know, it's, tell it's, us what the scam was. It's amazing how often this happens. I mean, it, it it just recently in a very similar fashion happened to my wife when when we were financing a new vehicle for her. Um, but somehow, some way, fraudsters get an understanding of the fact that you are purchasing a home or they get you know access to the fact that you're buying a car and you end up with a text message or you end up with a with an email that has information or has a link in it or gives you information that looks like it's coming from your realtor, you know the the agent you're working through or perhaps the auto company that you're purchasing from, right? And at the end of the day, it's not, right? And they're trying to to hijack and scams, in general, you know, we're, we're a global business. We're deployed in 27 different countries today. And, and scams take many shapes and forms. But the one constant is that they're growing at an incredibly rapid rate. I mean, even in the UK, where we're headquartered, 
and I'm based in Chicago, um, just as an FYI, but it, it, where in the UK, they're looking at legislation of putting more onus on the banks and forcing them to repay customers that fall victim to scams when those banks haven't taken the appropriate actions to try to stop fraud, right? So it's basically anyone trying to pretend to be someone they're not, right? I, I got, even this morning, I got three I got three emails and one text message, all claiming to be a vendor that I do business with, different vendors, right? But each one in its own right was trying to get me to click a link or trying to get me to call a phone number where they'll have a fake call center rep. I mean, it it's unbelievable how sophisticated it's gotten. And, you know, for for people that are that follow it, that are really up on it, you can kind of you can recognize the scam, right? You've seen them before. But it's people like this person's mom who are not necessarily all the way up to speed on this, don't know what that looks like. It makes sense that you're getting this information to, to put in to send your money because you're about to buy a house. So you just assume that it's correct, right? Um, and when that Luckily, happens- Luckily, I'm not important enough for anyone to be sending me that many text messages and, <laughs> and uh, emails all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, yeah, but I bet I bet if you go into your email and you look at your junk mail, you'll you'll you've got a good spam protection that's protecting you because it's amazing how much garbage. Yeah, that's it. That's I like that, Bill. That's it. It's not that I'm yeah. not important at all. No, and everyone knows there's nothing to get out of me. It's, no, it's they're, they're just you've just got Fort Knox set up appropriately to protect you. That's all, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, I want to I want to make sure we move towards what you guys do. That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that because I had never heard of that. And that's absolutely wild. So please, everybody pay attention. We know that these fraudsters have no shame and, but that's a, that's a new one. And I've been doing this a while now. So everyone, please tell your mom, tell your uncle, tell your brother, or sister, protect yourself. Um, so okay, Brad, Brad, just to put in perspective and sorry to interrupt, but like we yeah. had, when my wife was buying that car, right. We're literally sitting at the dealership. Um, and she was, they were pushing through her finance. Um, financing and the credit score and all the stuff you do, right? When you're buying that thing. Right. And she got three phone calls, none of which were from her bank. None of them were initiated by the auto company. All three were fraud, fraud uh, scams, basically pretending to be the loan institution that would be financing the, the car and trying to get her information. Wow. I mean, that was within minutes, right? I mean, that's, that's how quick this stuff can happen though. And that's why you know, to tie it all together, I suppose that's why we're in the business that we are at Celebris, because with how quick fraud is happening, we have to be, we wanted to bring technology to the market that could move at the speed of fraud and stop it before it happens. Because trying to, trying to get the money back after it's gone is a losing proposition. It only happens about 20% of the time, if you're lucky. For sure. So Celebris specializes in compliant first-party data. Explain to me what that means, because I, I know what each of those words kind of mean together, but explain how you're making that combination. What kind of first-party data wouldn't be compliant to collect, and then mm -hmm. we'll kind of move into the value of the first-party data collection versus other forms of Yeah, fraud. no, absolutely. There's a lot of jargon in there, right? So let's just boil it down to what it really is, right? When you When you have a brand, whether you're a financial institution, a retailer, whatever, you have all of your digital touch points, your websites, your mobile apps, maybe ATMs, maybe you've got kiosks in an airport, right? And they're all consumer touch points and they all are part of a journey. Um, and you want to capture data from all of those in, in a way that you own and control it, right? And so Celebris as a platform is a single tenant private install on a client by client basis. There's no data sharing. There's no 
shared infrastructure. Um, and it becomes an embedded part of a client's infrastructure. So it sits within their world, whether that's in a private cloud or whether that's on-premise. Um, so they own the system, they own the data, they control the data, and it captures from all the channels that they own. And so that's what we mean when we say first party, right? There's a lot of technologies out there that capture data on digital websites and mobile apps, but they sit in a third party nature. They're outside the environment. And a lot of fraud applications are like that, right? They, and as a result, they're limited, right? They can't capture uh, personally identifiable information. The amount of data that they capture is extremely simplistic or, or missing key elements. And, and to us, the reason we say compliant is because when we're embedded, it gives the brands the freedom to capture what they actually need to get out in front of fraud prevention. And it allows them to build evidentiary profiles about individual over time and across channel and device in a way that helps in me versus me and determining whether or not that's actually me doing this action or making that transfer or whether it's me versus a fraudster, right? So give me, give me an example. Sure. Like so of a type of, of a piece of data that you could get that you wouldn't get otherwise. Sure. So let's, let's, let's just take a journey, right? You go, let's say you go, you're thinking about starting a new account with a bank, you go to that banking website. The minute you land on that site, if Celebris is deployed, we're capturing behavioral data about you. We're capturing information about your device. We're capturing what in the fraud world is largely called behavioral biometrics, right? But we're doing it from the minute you get there. We're not doing it from the point where you identify or the point where you log in. And so every page you view, we're capturing all of the, your journey metrics. We're capturing how you move the mouse, how fast you type, if you're using a mobile device, how you've oriented the screen, how hard you press on it, how big is your finger that's pressing on, on the screen, so on and so forth, um, the gestures that you typically perform. And all of this you know, builds basically a profile about you, even if you're not logged in, right? It starts when you're anonymous. And we provide a fully featured and functional first-party ID graph so that once you do log in, we manage all of those different IDs for our customers. It all gets packaged up. And what it provides over time is a complete picture of all the devices you use, the behaviors that you exhibit, the transactions that you've completed, et cetera, et cetera. So that over time, that evidence continues to grow and grow, right? And where it goes wrong, because I always like to give a story around where it goes wrong. For brands that aren't doing that, you know, I'll give you a prime example. I am in London you know, every couple of months. And to this day, the bank that I work with, who is not a Celebrus customer yet, but maybe they're listening, um, is uh, they always flag transactions, but I'm a creature of habit. When I go to London every two months to, to be at our offices there in HQ, I buy the same coffees from the same places. I, I do oh, all man, the same. That's what I do too. Thing. I got my, my standard coffee order. It's a must. Yeah. And it still gets flagged for me. And the reason it gets flagged is because they're not building and persisting an evidence profile about me. So the knee-jerk reaction when you don't have enough data is to just assume it's fraudulent. And the downside to that in the fraud world is we call that a false positive, right? But all that does is upset the hell out of your customers. Right. So one of the really interesting things that I read up about what you guys do is this mouse path um, mm -hmm. as a data, data point, because... Historically, obviously, all kinds of behavioral biometrics have been used almost not from the beginning, but very early in the industry. And obviously, they've grown much more sophisticated over time, but it's an idea that's existed for a very long time. Absolutely. But it sounded it sounded to me like you you guys have innovated or pushed that a little bit forward to make it a little bit more actionable. I'm interested in a 
from a technical standpoint, kind of what that looks like or why that's the case or or what's different from before? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I think um, uh, the the best way I would s- summarize this is context is key. Right. Um, and what I mean by that is when you think about all the things you can do, like if you're driving the way you move a mouse across the page or where you click or how you hover, et cetera, as an example, it's a lot of data. Right. But if you can boil that down contextually, apply some machine learning to it and instead have sort of common paths identified instead of worrying about every single point where the mouse has moved, it takes something that is maybe 30, 40, 50 data points and boils it down to one. Right. But that one represents something much larger and but does so in a way that allows you to take better action on it. Right. And to build better um, better evidence. I mean, in general, when it comes to digital data, there's so much information. And that's why a lot of the platforms that we come up against, and the reason why we launched this platform in the first place two years ago, was because these gaps were being created in digital data capture for fraud detection, because the vendors themselves didn't really know how to make that contextually relevant, right? And fortunately for us, we've been in the data, the data and contextualization space for over 20 years. Right. We've done it largely for marketing and business use cases for for you know the majority of our pedigree. But ultimately, that's what led to us launching this platform, because you can boil down everything. I mean, even um, the types of content you interact with. Right. Like I could look at the pages you viewed or the content that you're interacting with, or maybe the types of credit cards that you're researching at that point in time. But that's a lot of granular information. If I can instead hand you a machine learning model that looks at all the things you're you're interacting with and generates signals, which our product does, and those signals are basically a, a, a machine learning model that basically scores what you're doing against a list of potential behaviors, what things you're interested in, life events like buying a home, et cetera, and surfaces those signals, then you can use that again as an as evidence in the profile to say, well, Bill, you know, three weeks ago was looking to buy a home. So we know this, him doing this behavior and maybe calculating a mortgage right now is, is makes sense. So, so far so good. Right. But then you can use that to then look for variations or deviations from the norm. You know, for example, maybe I've never done a bank transfer of a certain size ever online. And now I'm trying to do one. That might be a great reason to throw a red flag and intervene. Right. Right. Yeah. And I know that the, the dark side of this is when uh, expectant mothers were getting b- coupons for diapers and and baby things when they were only maybe six months along or seven months along, and it felt like a very large invasion of privacy that kind of Target or any company knew hmm. kind of when they were expecting to have a baby. So my my question to you is, as we move forward with these types of behavioral analytics, big picture here. Where do you see the industry going in the future? We Have we maxed out what we are capable of doing at this point in our current iteration? The, the industry has gone through many iterations. And right now, in a lot of ways, some of this feels like we're really digging deep for every little bit of improvement. Do you feel that that's the case? Do you see something new coming along in the near future? If if yes, what? And then how do you think customers will react as it's increasingly moving towards biometric signals that are, are increasingly um, invasive? 
in, in, in how they're operating. You know, so there's a few things I think to unpack there. And I love the Target example. I mean, as an aside, I was working as a consultant uh, for Target back when that original story uh, uh, happened, but it, uh, it it's it's morphed so much over the years that that's probably for, for you and I over a beer someday, Brad. But the, uh, um, you know, when you get into the fraud world, I think you, you first and foremost, you need to separate what you do for marketing and what you do for fraud, because that invasiveness that you mentioned, you know, with GDPR and legislation all over the globe, we're in 27 different countries today, right? And all of them have some version of GDPR. And so when it comes to marketing, you have to stay within the lines. You have to only capture the things that a consumer has elected for you to do. And that data should be fundamentally separate from anything else that you're doing for risk and fraud, right? Because in the risk and fraud world where you're protecting the consumers, you know, there's legitimate interest is sort of the, the framework, if you will, um, that allows you to capture all of this information. And if you're only using that data for risk and fraud and you're using it to protect consumers, then you're free to do that, right? And then, and then I think where the, where the needle moves to and what we see in the industry is there's been a lot of gaps that, that we like to think we now fill, um, but there will constantly be innovation in digital. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, you need... There's a lot of solutions that are rule-based or focus on one specific fraud use case or only capture very specific data to do something very specific for fraud. And a lot of that is very antiquated now because fraud moves so quickly. Um, the minute something has been written about or an approach has been documented, the fraudsters have already moved on, right? They're, they're doing something else or they've made an adjustment to avoid detection. And so these systems that are very rigid and focused on looking in one direction, it's kind of like having a horse with blinders on, right? You're not looking to the left and right. You're only looking straight ahead. And that's where we think we fit, right? Is because the data that we're capturing ultimately can become the single source of truth for digital, for fraud prevention and, de and detection, and can feed the various systems and the various teams and the various case management organizations that care about specific types of fraud. But it gives them a fighting chance to stay out in front of evolving threats as well. And I think that's the area that you're going to see a lot more of the innovation coming from is how do we connect the dots from what's been a very siloed approach to different types of fraud by different teams in the same organization? And how do we rally everyone together and give them the data that they need to actually get out in front of the threats instead of just retroactively looking to see how much money was stolen in the first place? Right. And that's a super interesting way that you put that because we've been hearing a lot of that. We, we've speak, spoken with many different people and we constantly hear this idea towards operational excellence, I'll call it, that mm -hmm. the idea of pushing fraud off to the side is no longer relevant. And, and that is true, but I'm going to challenge you here and put you on the spot. From a mm -hmm. technological standpoint, do mm -hmm. you think that there is much more innovation left to be had? Not Not in terms of uncovering new methodologies, because that's always going to be the case. But is it going to be a scenario where we're using kind of the same technologies more intelligently, more efficiently, but the core way that we fight fraud has now reached this kind of level, at least in this iteration of the internet. Sure. And we've talked a lot on this program about AR, VR, and all these types of things. But uh, uh, IOT and all that. But in terms of today's internet, today's commercially used internet, have we maxed out on that, do you think? Or are there going to be additional innovations coming down? You know, it, 
It's an interesting question, right? I mean, I think you you just touched on a little bit of what how I'd probably frame this up because I mean there are constant changes happening in web and mobile, right? Um, and that's not just new devices; it's it's what's capable within the existing ones that we're walking around with, right? Um, different features, different gestures, different capabilities in apps, and all of those present an opportunity to capture evidence to protect you, right? So I do think. You know, the sky, the sky's the limit here, probably, because as things innovate, as operating systems continue to innovate, I mean, even the security protocols of web browsers are changing seemingly every three to four months to try to to help improve things, right? But every like my single, email inbox. Like my yeah, email. <laughs> exactly. Right. Locked and down. So each one of those is a chance to potentially capture more data that in the end will help a brand better fight on behalf of their consumers to protect them from fraud. So I don't think the battle's ever really done. I think as the devices continue to evolve and the way that we interact with brands continues to evolve, um, you know, you're going to see more and more opportunities for innovation and in how we bring that data and make it contextually relevant so that it's not just a bunch of noise. Gotcha. And I'll wrap up here because I know everyone has hard stops on this call. Spoiler alert for everyone listening. Um, we always talk on this program about the consumer and the consumer experience. And I've posed this question to other, other uh, leaders in the industry, but I'll pose it to you as well. Do we ever get to a point where people start to feel uncomfortable with this? Do we get to a point where you mentioned new capabilities? Google now looks in my ears to, to do my air or Apple looks in my ears to make my AirPods listen better. In the future, it might be that they're doing retina scans on me. I said at some point, I feel like I'm going to have to give a drop of blood into my iPhone to be able to use Apple Pay. Like, is there is there a certain point where people say enough? Or do you think that the convenience factor will always win out over privacy concerns? So I think, again, you almost need to separate some of those things, right? Because if it's for marketing and personalization, and if it's to build a better experience, so more on the business side, right? Um, I think, and and I've always said this, and uh, it's all about towing the line between being helpful and creepy and not and trying not to trip over it as a brand, right? So I do think just because you could capture data doesn't mean you should, right? When it comes to marketing and business and and how you intervene, you know, is really really important how you think about that how how real time you make it so as not to to upset someone or make them feel uncomfortable i think it's a real challenge for brands and marketers right now flipping that to the fraud side i think it's all about education right the more we educate on as brands and as industry leaders how this data is going to be used and how it protects them and also ensuring that from an ethics perspective, that data is never being used for other purposes, right? Which I think is something that brands need to sign the line on. Um, you know, then then it becomes about education, right? Because if I if I have to do something and I and that brand then is going to protect my money that I've worked hard for, that a, a family has worked hard for, then that's probably a good thing, right? But then if you're turning around and selling that data or using that data for marketing purposes, then you've you've now broken the ethics barrier and you've broken that trust, right? So it 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 really requires a solid data strategy. It requires a lot of education as an industry in the separation between business marketing and fraud for you know just two high level terms, right? 
But you really got to think of it from that perspective, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of money at risk today, billions of dollars at risk for various types of frauds. And when you add all that up, it's it's a pretty massive impact. And, and that can that can really disrupt a family. It can disrupt someone who's, you know, just getting by and, and scraping and working hard. Right. And then suddenly they have their money stolen from them and something could have been done to prevent that. Right. I I, I also one thing I think to add to that is the idea of protecting this data. It's not just about mm-hmm. corporate malfeasance or ethics. It's also about how are you storing this data? Where are you keeping it? Because not not a day goes by that you don't hear about some huge, massive data breach. Yep. Right now, they're getting my social security number. But in the future, if my DNA profile or viral ro- load or whatever it is, is, is out there, I don't know. That's where I start to feel like yeah. maybe I'm just like a late stage oh. millennial and I'm Gen Z and the kids behind me don't care. But to me, that's where I start to be like, yeah, I don't know that I want my DNA profile out in anybody's yeah. database anywhere. Yeah. And that's where first party data and first party ownership becomes so critical, right? Because if a brand is going to take the steps to capture data to this level, um, then they shouldn't be sending it out to third party applications that exist outside their world. Right. The, this, this stuff should be is sensitive and should be treated as such. And it should be locked down. Right. I mean, even within an organization, who has access to what should be a conversation that's happening on a daily basis in brands. Yeah, for sure. I wish we could continue, Bill, but I know uh, everybody has to to get on with their day. But it's really been a pleasure. I hope we can have you back sometime. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about that data security piece and kind of what that should look like moving forward. Because it's it's a huge issue as we as we move towards sophisticated fraud and more and more sophisticated methods of trying to prevent that fraud. I think these issues are just going to become more and more relevant with every passing year. So. Um, but thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate your time and we'll let you sign off to everyone once again, uh, where they can find you on the web and thanks for your time. Brad, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. And I'd, I'd be happy to come back anytime you'd like, and, uh, they can find information. It's pretty straightforward. Just celebrus.com C E L E B R U S.com. Or you can look me up directly on Twitter or LinkedIn at Bill Bruno. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you.